Amen. Thank you, Susanna. And thanks to you, those of you who are learning the joy of stewardship and choosing to be generous as an act of worship here at UPC. Again, my name is George Hinman. Our sermon series is called Not Sure. We begin with a story about a little boy who one day asked his father, Dad, where do human beings come from? And Dad said, oh, well, we're um, descended from the apes. And, and then he asked his mom, you know, Mom, where do human beings come from? And she said, oh, we're made by God. We're in God's image. And all this confused the little boy. So he said, but, but Mom, Dad said we were descended from the apes. And she said, oh, I was talking about my side of the family. <laughs> not sure. Well, that's our topic today, not sure. Faith fits with science. Now, unfortunately, you and I live in a moment where faith and science have both been weaponized, right? And so what a while ago just felt like an uneasy marriage now feels kind of like a bad divorce. But today, I want to ask you, can we ask some questions about this? Can we ask questions of science inside the faith community? And can we ask questions of faith inside the science community? And what happens when we do? Well, Richard Dawkins, the great evolutionary biologist, um, just a few years ago, he tweeted a phrase that, that the, one of the followers of Jesus, this is Richard Dawkins, was, quote, the patron saint of scientists. I want to talk about that follower today. His name is Thomas. Uh, we sometimes call him Doubting Thomas. I wonder whether we should do that or not. Um, Thomas, the patron saint of scientists, Richard Dawkins tells us. Well, let's learn a little bit more about why Dawkins might have said that by going back to the original source materials behind our, our knowledge of, of Thomas. And that's uh, going to take us to John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. So whip out a phone or device, navigate over there, and then you can follow along with me. I'm actually going to invite you to stand if you're able and read aloud with me. Um, we'll put the text on the screen as well. But John 20, verses 24 through 29. Now, before we read, just understand the setting. The story begins on Easter Sunday. Uh, disciples are in an upper room. The guy that was dead, Jesus, shows up, apparently. But Thomas isn't there. He's somewhere else, right? Probably still at the computer lab. But the, Thomas shows up just after Jesus is gone, and he goes, I'm not sure I believe what you guys believe. A week later, Jesus does show up. So this is the story. Let's read aloud and uh, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. 
This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Oh, the patron saint of scientists. What do you think? So let me talk with you about Thomas and, and his experience and three aspects of that experience. His problem, his probing, and his profession. You know you're in church because it all starts with peace. His problem, his probing, and his profession. First, his problem. I will not believe. He has a problem, doesn't he? I will not believe. Yeah, you all can believe whatever you choose to believe. No judgment from me. That's fine. That's your story. I have a different story. I can't follow you on this one. I will not believe. It's a pro- he's a problem, doesn't he? He's not going to just wave away the intellectual challenge of this claim they make. Now, we, we know Thomas is not a modern scientist, but I think the modern scientist inside of each of us secretly admires him. Do we not? Thomas wants evidence. He, he wants his beliefs to be grounded on something he knows is true. Uh, he, he wants to run an experiment. Yeah, could I run just a few tests before I draw my conclusion? He, I would love to have a repeatable, verifiable outcome. And until that happens, he says, I will not believe. He's a problem. Now, science today presents us with similar problems. Uh, Steven Pinker, for example, the cognitive psychologist at Harvard University, writes, the findings of science imply that the belief systems of all the world's traditional religions and cultures are factually mistaken. That's a that's a big claim. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, again, uh, says the universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So what if that's true? To many, it's plausible. And they say, we say, with Thomas, I will not believe. I cannot believe. But let me just take a minute and come back to the idea of deconstructing faith or deconverting. Remember, Mike, we t- we've talked about this a couple times in this series. By the way, if you, I would encourage you to go back if you missed any of these messages because they kind of hold together. But we've been talking about deconstructing faith. A lot of us are doing that right now, particularly those of us who are younger. I worked at MIT as a chaplain uh, for several years, and I've worked with university students for more than 30 years, now that I think about it. And I've learned something along the way. There's kind of a pattern, and th- this, is my, my, this is my hypothesis. You know, our minds develop in the West these days kind of in two lanes. You have the church lane and you have the school lane. And you might start both at the same time, right? Maybe Sunday school and then, you know, Monday school, and they kind of progress together, and your mind is growing. But somewhere along the way, many of us, we step out of the church lane, at least the educational track, right? We, uh, maybe sixth grade youth group, we just kind of stop doing the Sunday school thing. <clears throat> but our school development continues down that lane. We, we, we grow. <clears throat> in sophistication, in complexity, in maturity, intellectually. 
what happens is somewhere along the way, we get to a point in life where we're asking really significant questions, but we're asking graduate school level questions. And when we think about the faith, we're only able to furnish sixth grade answers. And so of course, of course it's not adequate. Of course it seems irrelevant, the whole faith thing. And, and, and we walk away, we say, I will not believe. I've seen that pattern again and again and again. Charles Taylor, who's a, one of my favorite philosophers at McGill University in Canada, he has a theory about this, and I, I, I think it's worth sharing. He says, when we deconvert, it's not because of particular discoveries that science offers us. It's more the general pattern or the general form of science as a whole, the culture uh, that we're in as scientific people. It's this nagging sense that faith is for the young and that science is for the mature or thoughtful. Here are his words. He says, even where the conclusions of science seem to be doing the work of conversion, it's very often not the detailed findings so much as the form. The appeal of scientific materialism is not so much the cogency of its detailed findings, it is seen as the stance of maturity, that's, that's the point, of courage, of manliness, if you will, over against childish fears and sentimentality. In other words, when we feel we have to turn from our faith, it's not because we learn, oh my gosh, the world is round, or species evolve, or there's a chemical substrate to our emotional experiences. No, it's more that we just have this sense that when you're young, you can believe, but when you grow up, you really must not believe. That's our, that's our culture. That's where on this side of the Enlightenment, 18th century, on this side of the Enlightenment, we feel we have no right, no, here I'll use a fancy word, epistemic, uh, um, warrant for believing something we can't rationally explain. Not the detailed findings, more the, the culture that we're in today. Now, Taylor's, Charles Taylor, his proposal is not that we give up science. We do not want to give up science, Taylor says, but what we do need is a more robust, complex understanding of our faith. Go further down the other lane. See, that's, that's what Taylor is saying. So, questions. There's a problem, certainly for Thomas, maybe for us as well. Let's ask some faith questions in the science community. By the way, we have a number of scientists here. I, I see you and I know you, uh, right in the room at this moment. So here's some questions as we sit in the scientific community. What do I believe about things that transcend science? Or what steps could I take to explore my faith with the same level of curiosity and intention I bring to my science? What steps? Or how can my faith keep science from becoming a religion for me, exerting a kind of totalitarian claim on my psyche and life? Because maybe Thomas, maybe, was looking at the wrong end of the whole thing. Maybe his problem wasn't really with physiology and mortality and whatever he understood about those things. Maybe it was more that he had a limited understanding of God. I will not believe. And so here's Jesus, gently, graciously, as always, pushing him, really pushing him, though, towards a more mature faith. And I think that's, 
That's the lesson of the problem. Jesus pushes us towards a more mature faith. So let's move on. Secondly, the second experience we, we see here is that Thomas is probing. Put your finger, these are the words of Jesus, put your finger here. Probe, probe Thomas, probe me. Now this is remarkable, just think about this for a second. Jesus is inviting Thomas to come run the experiment on, on Jesus' body. This is remarkable. I mean, he's saying do your science, run the experiment. Let me just get up on top of your lab table here for a second, move the beakers, and uh, go ahead. I'm your lab subject, you're gonna have to write this thing up, all right? He's, he's put your hand, reach your finger, probe. And I think you can see at, this, at the most basic level, this is actually science. This is what we do in science. So Dawkins is quite right to name him the patron saint of scientists. I mean, his instruments are crude. It's, it's an eyeball, it's a finger, uh, it's a hand. But what does he do with those instruments? He measures, he analyzes, he scans, he classifies. See, what is for others a confession of faith? Jesus is Lord. For Thomas is merely a hypothesis that needs further investigation. And Jesus says, do it. Give me your hand. Caravaggio is a beautiful painting of this. You wanna Google it. Google Caravaggio and Thomas. In that painting, Jesus is pulling Thomas's hand into his side. He gets it. This is, the, this is the probing. I wonder if it's too much to suggest this morning that therefore Jesus approves of science. That actually Jesus believes in science. This is, this is unusual, right? And you might be resisting this, okay? But if you resist this, may I politely suggest it might be because you're suffering from just a touch of confirmation bias. Because, you know, we come into the room already thinking thoughts about Thomas. And can I ask you just to, to reflect on those thoughts for just a moment? Because, you know, many of you have grown up in a church. I didn't, so I don't have this particular form of confirmation bias. But many of you were told Thomas is doubting Thomas in kind of a pejorative tone, right? Oh, Thomas, least of the apostles, last to get it. Kind of pulled, kicking in. Uh, uh, screaming into the reality of the good news of the gospel, right? You think, poor Thomas, why was he better? Not more like me, right? So man, we, we kind of, that's in the ether right now. So I just want to challenge that thought. I don't think John is portraying Thomas in this way. And I give you three quick reasons. First of all, the argument of the whole gospel, it, it, the argument of the whole gospel is, Remember, John, remember uh, Mike gave us the insight that the Gospel of John is organized around seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus performs? Well, he's right. And, and the, it culminates in this argument that if you see those signs, investigate those signs, and believe those signs, then you will have life in Jesus Christ. That's actually what, what, what John tells us in the very next paragraph after Thomas. And Thomas is exhibit A. Actually, he's the climax of this whole argument. He goes, just like Thomas. You see the signs, you investigate them, you believe and you have life. Thomas is the exemplar of what John has been writing through the whole gospel. Don't tell me there's something deficient about Thomas. He's being held up as a role model for us. Okay, that's the first, the argument of the book. Secondly, parody. 
he actually gets the same experience and needs the same things as the other 11 disciples. And I, you can see that later if you compare the scene that we just read with the scene that comes immediately before. Notice, almost exactly the same thing happens. Same room, same people, same things are said. And what, ha- what we realize is they get the same evidence Thomas does, just he wasn't there. And remember last week, they all doubted. We see this in Luke and other places. The disciples, they don't believe either, these guys. They don't. So there's really parody. They're very much the same. What's different is that Thomas has the courage to investigate. Parody. Then the third thing is Jesus. Now, some people think that his words in verse 29 sound like some kind of a smackdown. But I say to you, that is not what it is. Jesus does not rebuke. He does not condemn. He does not grumble under his breath at all at Thomas. In fact, he, he grants Thomas's request. How could he? He honors Thomas's request. No, the words that Jesus speaks in verse 29 are an invitation to borrow the investigation of Thomas for us as readers. They're directed at us, not Thomas. No, what I'm saying here is that Thomas is a hero and Jesus invites him to do science. Jesus believes in science. And the reason for that is Jesus is the truth. Remember what he said? I am the way. This is the Gospel of John. I am the way and the truth and the life. There's nothing you can find in science that will keep you from what is true. And at the end of all things that are true, we meet a person, Jesus Christ. He's the Word made flesh. John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. That word word, logos, logic, it's the word that the Greeks used for the ordering of the cosmos. Now has stepped out of that cosmic order and into space and time as a human being to say, I am the truth. And actually, bodily resurrection, what Thomas is touching, is the very thing that confirms science. It's validity, it's the basis for science. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that matter matters. Matter matters. And they didn't actually believe that at this time. The the Greeks, the great philosophers, the preceding four centuries, they had taught everybody that matter is secondary. It's a second class citizen. Uh, It it shouldn't be invited to the family dinner because uh, matter is corruptible, it's weak, it's perishable, it's corrupting flesh, the bad, and spirit is good. We really ought to aspire to escaping from the material world into the world of the ideals, into the world of the eternal. And so it's rather scandalous in that intellectual climate for God to be resurrected bodily. Right? Are you, are you with me? So that when Thomas reaches out and touches flesh and blood, he's touching God. That's a paradigm shift. But it's that reality that makes science an important and essential and a reliable discipline uh, for us. God has bound himself to the material cosmos to claim it and to renew it. That's the heart of the gospel. So the quark and the muon, dark matter, phytoplankton, glaciers, bacteria, subduction zones, probe, put your finger here, put your hand there. This is the invitation. You'll know the name Albert Einstein. He had three pictures on the wall in his office. Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and James Clerk Maxwell. All groundbreaking scientists, all believers, all of them. 
Newton, did you know this? Newton wrote more theology than he wrote physics. And Faraday was a passionate Christian. Maxwell, don't hold this against him, he was even an evangelical Presbyterian, right? Still a good guy, but he was. And he was an elder in his church. What you could say about them, you could also say about Katherine Johnson, the engineer at NASA, about hidden figures, remember that? That's Katherine Johnson and Rosalind Picard today at MIT in computer science. To them, science is worship. It's worship. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist write. Day to day pours forth speech. You know, when I was a chaplain, I mentioned at MIT, people used to say, oh, isn't that a hard place for faith? What in the world? A chaplain at MIT. And I would say, uh, no, actually, what I learned is that there are more Christian faculty, more Christian groups. There were like 30 to 40 plus Christian groups at this one little school uh, called MIT. You go, why would that be? I think it's because of what John Polkinghorne calls critical realism. John Polkinghorne is the, the great quantum physicist uh, turned uh, Anglican priest. And critical realism is the idea that there's something out there that we can discover. And scientists seem to understand that. And that, that principle of critical realism informs their faith as well. There's something out there to be discovered. If you're interested in this topic, and I know some of you aren't, but that's, so thanks for bearing with me. I'm going to move on to another subject. But if you're interested in this topic, I would encourage you to read more. And I would invite you to read John Polkinghorne. So we'll put his name on the screen. And uh, the book I would recommend starting with is Belief in God in an Age of Science. If you'd like something shorter, a bit more accessible, then I recommend Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And chapter seven is a very nice introduction to this topic. Nobel Prize winning physicist William D. Phillips says this. I love this quote. It's a little bit long, but listen to this. I see, Nobel Prize winner, I see an orderly, beautiful universe in which nearly all physical phenomena can be understood from a few simple mathematical equations. I see a universe that had it been constructed slightly differently would never have given birth to stars and planets, let alone bacteria and people. And there is no good scientific reason for why the universe should not have been different. Many good scientists, he writes, have concluded from these observations that an intelligent God must have chosen to create the universe with such beautiful, simple, and life-giving properties. Many other equally good scientists are, nevertheless, atheists. Both conclusions, he says, though, are positions of faith. That's interesting. Both conclusions are positions of faith. So questions. Now these are science questions to be raised in the faith community, and some of us are in the faith community as well. So here are three questions. First of all, how does science inform your faith and enrich your worship? How does science inform your faith and enrich your worship? Secondly, how might the resurrection encourage you to investigate, enjoy, and protect all life and the natural order? How might the resurrection do that? And then thirdly, can you imagine a spiritual revival, should the Lord grant it in our time and place, without the renewal of the sciences as people think Christianly in their disciplines and apply the good news to their research? Can you imagine? Let's pray for that. So, because maybe Thomas 
learns when he probes, maybe what he learns is that God has blessed this pale blue dot we call the earth more than he knew. That this place filled with its wonders is so loved by God and that flesh and blood, ew, flesh and blood, yes, is precious because God himself has taken it up and pulled it through the grave into resurrection life. Put your finger here, Jesus says. So the lesson of his probing, I think, is that we are to pursue science. Jesus invites us to pursue science. And this brings us to Thomas's last experience, finally, his profession. What I have in mind here is the words he speaks, his profession of faith. My Lord and my God, that's his profession of faith. Now, it's not a a blind leap of faith, nor is it the outcome of his science, I don't believe. But those in the room who had heard these words, I will not believe, and then who had heard these words, put your finger here, now he hear these spectacular words, my Lord and my God, and I envision Thomas falling to his knees with joy. This is his profession. And as I studied this this week, I go, why? What's happened all of a sudden? How do you get from I believe to my Lord? What's happened? I I would encourage you to look at the text carefully. Do you think, for example, that Thomas actually did put his finger in Jesus' nail prints? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. John doesn't tell us. I actually think he didn't because I actually think he didn't need to because I think what convinces Thomas is not what Thomas did in his investigation, but it's what Jesus said in his words to Thomas. It's the words that Jesus spoke into Thomas's life. Now, what words does he speak? Look at the text. If you have it in front, he just, he has just told Thomas to put his finger in his side. Now, how did Jesus know that Thomas wanted to do that? Jesus wasn't there a week ago when Thomas came into the room late and said, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger. So in other words, what Thomas knows is that Jesus knows something Thomas hasn't told him. In other words, Jesus has read Thomas' mind. There's something supernatural about this man, Jesus, who knows the way Thomas thinks even before he says the words. That, I think, is what drops Thomas to his knees. This Jesus knows me. He loves me. He says not our Lord or our God in some ecumenical way. He's very personal. This is, he's touched deeply and personally by the Savior. My Lord, my God, you know me. You love me. You see me. You touch me. See, this is what moves him, I think. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that the Lord stands among us in the scientific community. And the Lord stands among us in the faith community, just as he stood 2,000 years ago in that upper room among those people. He knows you, he knows what you need, he knows what you think, he knows what you fear, what makes you anxious, he knows what makes you feel depressed, he knows all about that before you even know it yourself. Knows you better than you know yourself, this Savior Jesus. And when we seek him or when we even open ourselves up to him in the way that Thomas is doing in this moment, he speaks personally to us. How, you, how does he speak? I've never heard the voice of God. Well, he does it through his word and his spirit. This is what John has been pressing upon his readers, through word and spirit. 
He's the Word at the beginning of creation who enlightens every man and woman. That's how the gospel believes. He's the Word who's speaking. The speaking Word of God is Jesus. And He does so through the Spirit. Just just ahead of this scene, in that first scene in the upper room, Jesus breathes His Holy Spirit on His disciples. That's how He speaks personally, through Word and Spirit. Francis Collins wrote once that the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. You know Francis Collins, he was the head of the, uh, the, human, the Human Genome Project that mapped DNA, and also he's now the head of the NIH, so we see him on TV all the time. He cannot have an easy job right now. But did you know that when he began his career, he was an atheist? He says he grew up in a secular home, and it wasn't so much that religion was wrong, just irrelevant, who cares? Um, then when he went to Yale for graduate school, uh, he hardened in his atheism. Uh, he thought Christians were crazy, he tried to avoid them. Uh, but when he was a junior doctor in North Carolina, he went to, uh, one of his degrees is from UNC Chapel Hill. And he was serving in uh, hospitals there, and he worked with a lot of patients who had terminal diseases. One of whom was a woman who had excruciating, untreatable pain. And one day when he was with her in, in the examination room, she said to him, doctor, she shared her faith in Jesus, and she said to him, Doctor, what do you believe? And in that moment, this man who is so well-educated, so well-informed, a scientist said, in that moment, I didn't know what I believed, which for him was progress. <laughs> you know what? So it began an investigation. So he started to, to go deeper into science and its implications for theology. He uh, investigated other religions. He had a neighbor who gave him a book uh, by C.S. Lewis. He, he read that. It wasn't until two years later, one day, he's in the Cascade Mountains on a lovely afternoon, walking with friends, when he just had this sense of the presence of Jesus. And he says he fell to his knees. And he said, at that moment, I knew that when people said Christ died for our sins, I, I understood for the first time what that really meant. Jesus was speaking to Francis Collins. And he says, I fell to my knees, and I said to the Lord, I get it, I'm yours. I want to be your follower from now until eternity. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's very different from Thomas, but it is the same Jesus. It is the same word, the same speaking, and it is the same response, the same profession of faith, my Lord and my God. If you want to experience Jesus in this way, we want to help you, and you can. Isn't it possible that Jesus has you listening to this right now because he wants to speak to you very personally? That he's brought you to this moment because he has a message to you just like he did for Thomas in that room? We want to help you with that, and so after the service, we'll have our prayer team down front. Please come and talk to the friendly people. Uh, if you're listening online, then you can click the button in the chat and interact with people that way. If you're listening later, you can come to upc.org slash Jesus, we want to talk, please reach out to me or these friendly people. Because here's what I believe in the depth of my being. If there is a God, like the Bible suggests there is, this God is able and willing to speak to us. He made us. He made us like himself. He loves us. 
He's spoken through the prophets of old. He sent his Holy Spirit to speak today. He lines up the dominoes of our lives so that circumstances will get us to the place where we're ready to hear and he speaks to us of the great things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some people that happens uh, through science. For others it happens with a patient. For me it happened with a backpack trip, a rowing injury, and a girlfriend. I found that he's always been pursuing me, always been trying to get my attention, always eager to speak to me and to transform me. I have a growing sense of his presence now some 30 years later, and I believe he wants the same for you. One last observation, if you can tolerate it. I know you're already full, but notice this about Thomas. He didn't believe what the others believed, but he didn't leave either, right? He stayed with the group. And it's only because he stayed with the group that he was there the following week when Jesus showed up. Had he said, you guys are crazy, you're nuts, I don't believe I'm out, he would have missed what Jesus had for him. Isn't that interesting? And the kind of the corollary, the opposite of that is the group had space inside its way of being for Thomas, for someone who didn't believe what they believed. He said, friend, you are welcome here. And that's what it made it possible for them to hear the patron saint of science say, my Lord and my God. And what a joy that must have been for all of the people who were in the upper room that second Sunday. Well, friends, what Jesus says next and the last line of that incident, I believe, is a message for you and for me as well. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet who come to believe. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are a God who comes towards us. You seek us. Our hearts, our minds are lost, confused, anxious. We don't know how to turn to you. But Lord, we've been praying this prayer. We do believe, help us in our unbelief. And again, we ask you today, to draw us into your presence, to draw us into an awareness of your love, to draw us into a place where our minds, our ears, our hearts can be open to your speaking voice. And we pray that we'll respond with faith. Would you give us that grace and mercy? We know you want it even more than we want it for ourselves. And so we pray it today in your name, amen.